man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Friday edition of PFT PM, 4th day of May. Almost wasn't able to do it today. Ended up being able to do it. I didn't want to keep Chris Sims on hold all afternoon while I figured out whether or not I was going to have time to do this. So we've rescheduled Chris Sims for next week. I apologize in advance for that. But the good news is next week you get to look forward to our interview with Chris Sims. But I wanted to at least get one in the tank today as the weekend approached. A few thoughts on some of the developments of the past 24 hours or so, primarily events of the day. But there hasn't been much that's happened today other than Sam Darnold made his rookie minicamp debut with the Jets, and oh my God, he fumbled a couple of snaps. They have blown their pick. And I know that it's all we have to react to until we have something else to react to, but who cares if a guy fumbles a couple of snaps in his first rookie minicamp? That's a far cry from what he's eventually going to be, and it's hardly any indication that the Jets may have made a mistake. Time will tell how he grows, how he develops, and the Jets in a very unique position to have a veteran quarterback like Josh McCown who is happy to mentor, willing to mentor, motivated to mentor Sam Darnold. Most veteran quarterbacks are like, excuse me, rookie, get the hell out of my face. Watch and learn, kid. Or watch and don't loan. Or don't watch at all. Just get out of my face. Peter King getting into our face at NBC. That was a fun development yesterday. And NBC has been trying to get Peter King to go all in for a while. Hard to leave a place that you've been at for nearly three decades. Imagine that in this day and age. First of all, nobody stays in the same place for 29 years. Who does that? Secondly, in the media business, the way the landscape has shifted and changed over the years, how in the world does Peter King stay at Sports Illustrated for 29 years? But he did, and it's admirable. And I'm thrilled he's going to be joining us. PFT Live, one day a week, he's going to be in the Chris Sims role. So we're only going to have one open day left. And I think what's going to happen, one of those two guys is going to end up taking it. It's going to evolve that way. One of them is going to want to do it at some point. And I think once Peter gets a taste of one day a week, he's going to want the second day. So it would be two Peter, three Chris. I don't know that that's inevitable. That isn't part of the deal coming through the door, but I'm not going to be opposed to that. I don't want to go with a third one. You know, some people may think, well, okay, hey, Florio's out of the second co-host. Let's go ahead and add a third one. I don't want to do three days with Sims, one day with Peter, and one day with someone else. It's too many different people. It's too many different personalities. From my standpoint, directing traffic, teeing up the topics, bringing in the guests. Look, thank you for your service. It's not all that hard, but when it's live TV and radio, there's a chance that your butthole puckers a little bit when things don't go As planned, and the more you understand and know the habits, the tendencies, the likes and dislikes of the co-host, the easier it is to make all those things happen, to thread the needle. And the hardest part is making it look easy. Some of the most stressful days are the ones that seem like everything's fine. Because the challenge is, when everything goes to shit, you have to make it look like everything's fine. 
when it hasn't gone to shit, it's easy to make it look fine. In fact, it's actually easier to trip over your own shoelaces when everything's fine because you let your guard down. The days when there are issues, there are complications, those are the days that heighten your senses and actually force you to do better. The days when it's just same old, same old, everything's fine, everything's easy, that's when you find a way to make it harder for yourself by screwing up. So anyway, Peter will be with us. Peter's Monday morning column. And I don't think he'll be calling it Monday morning quarterback anymore because Sports Illustrated has that intellectual property, as they say. I'm going to suggest to Peter that he just call his Monday morning cornerback because, hell, it sounds the same. And if SI says, hey, now, that's not, that's Monday morning quarterback. No, it's Monday morning cornerback. Did you say quarterback? I say quarterback. It's quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. Sorry. He probably won't do that. See, it's going to be very important for him to have a good relationship with the folks still at Sports Illustrated. Unlike how I would do it. My attitude would be, screw it, blow it all up, I'm gone, kiss my ass. I probably wouldn't be that way. Now now I've got people at NBC saying, oh God, he's going to be a real dick once he leaves. Well, you know what? I already am. So, joke's on you. You knew when you hired me what you were going to get when you finally fire me. My goal is to stave off getting fired as long as possible. In that regard, Matt Ryan has staved off getting fired by the Falcons for at least another six years. What a contract he got. I got a phone call yesterday when the Ryan deal was first leaked. And usually what happens is the numbers that are initially leaked are bullshit. And the truth comes out later and exposes the bullshit. Somebody called me yesterday and said, and here's exactly what was told to me. A major contract is going to be announced momentarily. You will get the numbers at the appropriate time. You will get the numbers first. More on that in a second. But make sure that When you write this up, when the news breaks, you or your writer who covers it steers clear of suggesting there's any bullshit in the numbers, because I guarantee you there is no bullshit in the numbers. So we steered clear of suggesting there was bullshit in the numbers, and believe me, there wasn't. Now, the various people who cover the NFL slide into their roles. And I'm proud of the fact that people in the business regard me as somebody who's going to break down a contract, explains what it means, and and expose bullshit that will often be perpetrated by people who want to make deals look better than they are. And that happens all the time. Sometimes it will just be a matter of shading, a little ambiguity, X million guaranteed when it's really not guaranteed. Sometimes they round up to make the deal look better. Sometimes they they focus only on the new money because the new money makes it look a hell of a lot better than the total value it's signing. That typically happens when somebody's in the last year of a rookie deal and they're going to make like a million bucks or whatever it is. 1.9, I think, now is what gets triggered in the last year of a four-year rookie deal. You throw a new contract on top of it. You only focus on the new money. You leave out that year at 1.9. That drags the average down dramatically. 
And that analysis came into play with Matt Ryan. But anyway, we got the Matt Ryan numbers today, and I was blown away. Blown away. It is a real five-year, $150 million extension. What it is, though, because there's no such thing as an extension. It's a new contract that replaces the existing contract. That's what it is. Matt Ryan doesn't get the $19.25 million he was supposed to make this year, and then next year an extension kicks in at five years, one fifty. No, it's all thrown into the same contract. It's a six-year, $169.25 million contract, which was signed at a time when he had one year and $19.25 million left. The difference isn't significant because Ryan was making nearly $20 million this year, but it's enough to drag down the total value from 30 to 28.2. Now, total value at signing 28.2, that's still more than Kirk Cousins. And in many respects, this deal's better than Kirk Cousins because Cousins has $84 million fully guaranteed at signing. Ryan has $94.5 fully guaranteed at signing, practical guarantee of $100 million. Because the only way the Falcons can avoid the vesting of the final 5.5 is to cut Matt Ryan after one year. And at that point, they'd owe him $94.5 million. And by the way, all guarantees have no offset language. That's a rarity for a veteran contract. So if he would get cut at some point, any remaining guarantees he gets. He goes somewhere else. He keeps whatever he makes. And look, there are a lot of things that can be done with these veteran quarterback contracts along those lines that make the contracts sound really good. As a practical matter, there's no distinction. They're not going to cut Matt Ryan. They've had him for 10 years. All of a sudden, Matt Ryan is going to show up and, like, lose his fastball, not be able to play, not be committed. He's going to coast. He's going to gain 50 pounds and start chain-smoking unfiltered Marlboros. If they even make those anymore. See, after you have 10 years with a guy, he is who he is. You've seen the best, you've seen the worst. And with Ryan, there's been a lot more good than bad. The danger of a guy getting soft comes when he gets his second contract. When you get to third contract, fourth contract, he is who he is. So there's very low risk. They could have guaranteed the whole damn six years for Matt Ryan. They're going to keep him for six more years. Barring injury or some unlikely Steve Blass style, all of a sudden he can't do it anymore, which rarely happens. Think about this. How often does it happen that a quarterback who has established himself as a franchise guy either gets a serious injury that limits or ends his career or all of a sudden can't play anymore? It never happens. Robert Griffin III, the only one I can think of, and he was a one-year wonder. He had his serious injury as a rookie. What other great quarterback? You know, Jake DeLome had kind of a meltdown and never was the same guy again, but was he really a franchise quarterback? When we think of the great quarterbacks of the last 20 years, I think we rip through a lot of names before we get to Jake DeLome. So this is a safe play for the Falcons. And but for the fact that the full 169.25 million would have to be put in escrow and it's actually not the full amount it's like 80 percent the funding rule the fact that guaranteed money has to be set aside future guarantees has to be set aside you could just guarantee the whole damn thing and that's the next frontier a full guarantee of more than a three-year deal because now with Aaron Rodgers 
What does he do? He's got two years left at a total payout of 42. And as I suggested today, I think his play, if I'm representing Aaron Rodgers, I go to the Packers and I say, look, here's where we are. We're going to forget about these last two years, and you're going to pay him six years, $180 million, $30 million a year average from signing. Real 30. But, but, but the new money average is going to be 34.2. Doesn't matter. Don't care. I don't care about new money. I care about full value. This guy should be making $30 million a year. It's clear he should be making a $30 million a year average. Matt Ryan's at $30 million a year in new money. We want $30 million a year in total value. And we'll, we'll sign for six years at $30 million a year. It's up to you. If you want to make it five years, it's 150. If you want to make it four years, it's 120. If you want to make it three years, it's 90. That's the price, 30 million a year from now. Go. Forget about the 42 that's left. Give them 30 million a year, and you pick the number. We'll go to six, but we want 66% of it fully guaranteed at signing. Maybe we want all of it fully guaranteed. Now, Rogers, what, 35, 34, 35? I don't know about six-year guaranteed commitment. But again, with these franchise quarterbacks, the risk is low. Then comes Russell Wilson. We wrote about this last night. Right now, the Wilson mindset, franchise tag in two years. Because the thinking is the Seahawks aren't going to pay him what he wants. And there's a belief that he didn't push as hard as he could have with his last contract. Last time around, he treated Aaron Rodgers as the ceiling, and he got to 21-9 in new money. But the thing is, and this is where that new money analysis was critical, he had a year left on his rookie deal, his third-round rookie deal, so it really wasn't 21-9. And now he's getting closer to the end, and the way his deal is structured, his franchise tag number would be $30.2 million, I think, for 2020. It becomes $36 million and change for 2021, $52 million plus for 2022. And what the Seahawks, if it goes year to year like Kirk Cousins, they have to ask themselves, 2022, what do we pay him $52 million for one more year? Or do we let him hit the market? And in 2022, which really isn't all that far off, Russell Wilson would be 33. Old by other position standards, not by quarterbacks. Oh, but what about the fact that Russell Wilson runs the ball a lot? Isn't he going to have wear and tear? Well, where have we seen the wear and tear? The guy keeps going. He's had one injury. Actually, two, because an ankle injury, I think, contributed to the knee injury. He wasn't able to protect himself the way he ordinarily did. And it's not just that he runs away from trouble. He knows how to take a hit. He knows how to absorb punishment. And I think he started far earlier than the likes of Tom Brady on putting all the right things in his body, the right exercises in the offseason, everything necessary to ensure that he can endure the pounding that comes with playing in the NFL. He told me last year on PFT Live he wants to play until he's 45. He wants to stay with the Seahawks his whole career. It's going to be a lot more expensive the next time around for the Seahawks. And then there's Tom Brady. Tom Brady isn't appreciated by the Patriots. At least that's what he believes. Because when he had the chance on Monday to say that he is appreciated, he didn't say yes. That's the situation where anything other than yes is no. How do you show Tom Brady appreciation? You go to Tom and say, hey, Tom, you know the guy that you beat in Super Bowl 51? The guy who's never won a Super Bowl? You know, you've won five of them. He's won none. He's making $30 million a year now in new money. We're giving you his deal. For as long as you play, year to year, you're making $30 million a year. We'll make that happen. You deserve it. You've earned it. And we'll put a team around you, despite the fact that we're going to give you, for the rest of your career, however long it is, $30 million a year. That's how you show appreciation. And that's how you fend off 
what I think is happening behind the scenes in the Brady household. Mrs. Brady wants Tom Brady to stop playing. That was clear last year when she blurted out publicly in an interview with CBS that he's had concussions and that he had a concussion in 2016. Remember the shitstorm that created? She knew what she was doing, and I'm not saying she was wrong for doing it. No one's going to look out for you as much as your spouse is. So he's 40. He'll be 41 in August. He's constantly at risk of a serious injury. He's wearing that old helmet that has been regarded as unsafe by the NFL and the NFLPA to the point where no one's allowed to start wearing it if they aren't already using it. He's had concussions. At some point, the legs are going to go. That's what somebody told me a couple of years ago. With Brady, the legs are going to go before the arm, and if the legs go, he's done. Because the moment he can no longer slide around in the pocket and avoid contact, he's going to start getting hit, he's going to get hurt, and he's going to be done. And once the legs start to betray him, he's going to be far more cognizant of the rush, and then it's going to be Super Bowl 42 and 46 all over again. The games where we've seen Brady struggle, it's because he's more worried about what's going on around his legs than what's going on down the field. So she's concerned about that, and she should be. And their kids are getting a little bit older. When he's playing football, he's all in. And why? Right? At what point do you just say, I don't need to do this anymore? Now, see, here's the problem. Tom Brady needs to have a good plan for where he's going to find himself when he's done playing football. What's his identity? Who is he? Is it just the guru of this TB12 method? Or is there something else he's going to do that gives him purpose, that gives him meaning? I mean, you're old at 41. Well... If you stop playing football, all of a sudden you're not old. What do you do the rest of your life? You sit around and you spend your money? Every day's a vacation? That gets old fast, folks. Not that I've had anything more than... Well, I haven't taken any time off over the last 14 years because I always at least find some time to work on PFT. But, I mean, I, how, whatever shape or form profootballtalk.com takes over the remainder of my life, I'm still going to be involved in it because what the hell else am I going to do? Now, of course, I'm not in the position that Tom Brady is where even if I tried to go Brewster's Millions, I wouldn't piss away all my money. I mean, he's got more money than he could ever spend if he wanted to try to spend it. If he dedicated the remainder of his life to spending every dollar that he and his wife have, he'd never get it done. He'd be working harder to do that than he's ever worked in his life. But the point is this, when this not-so-subtle tension is unfolding in the Brady household and his wife, who, again, is going to care for him more than anyone else on the planet, is trying to get him to realize he should no longer be doing this. There's no reason to keep putting himself in harm's way. And, oh, by the way, they don't appreciate you. Just look at the fact that you're making less than Blake Bortles. How do you respond to that? And your spouse has a very keen sense of for when you're being taken advantage of. And your spouse is there to protect you against being taken advantage of. Well, the first thing the spouse has to do is get you to wake up from whatever spell the person who's taking advantage of you has put on you. It's a tough pill. I've been there. I've been there. Where there are situations where, professionally, maybe I'm being taken advantage of. Whether it's money. Whether it's... I mean, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole because then people will know 
when they were taking advantage of me, or at least when I thought maybe they were, and maybe there was a discussion about, maybe you're not getting your fair share here. Maybe you're not getting a fair shake in this transaction. And it's tough because, it has, you know, you have a very delicate balance in your life, and you start getting that thrown on top of everything, and it just it kind of upsets the overall mental and emotional apple cart. But you know what? At the core, there's some truth to it. So you act on it eventually. It's not easy, but you do what you have to do. For Tom Brady, what's he going to do? We keep coming back to that. Where's the end game? What does he want out of this? I think if they approach him and say, hey, Tom, we're giving you $30 million a year, or at a minimum, we're giving you more than Jimmy Garoppolo. I think that goes a long way to stemming this rising tide in the Brady household of, hey, Tom, you need to move on. And I assume the Patriots want to keep him for the next three or four years. Unless this is part of a play to get him to walk away, which I doubt because if that was the case, they would have drafted a quarterback higher than whatever round they drafted one in. Something to keep an eye on. As these numbers go higher and higher, at what point do they fix this disparity? It's one thing for Tom Brady to be averaging 20 when the top of the market's 22, 23, 24. It's another thing to be averaging 20 when you've got guys at 30 and the backfill is a bunch of guys who haven't done shit in the NFL. How do you answer the position articulated by your spouse who is there to look out for you that you're being taken advantage of when she's rattling off names of guys that in comparison to Tom Brady are slapdicks? All due respect to the franchise quarterbacks who have made big money over the past year, but in comparison to Tom Brady, they're slapdicks. And you can very easily make that argument as Tom Brady's wife. At some point, because, I mean, what, are the Patriots otherwise spending up to the cap? Are they spending every last dollar on putting the best possible team around Tom Brady? Are they doing everything possible to win every Super Bowl that they can, including, you know, putting Malcolm Butler on the field? That's part of this. It's not going away either. All right, let's answer some questions. PFTPM Posse responding as usual. Question from PFTPM Posse. Do you think we will see a woman in a major NFL booth Question mark soon, question mark. I would think a woman could provide a different view as well as getting more females tuned in. Most women I know are turned off by the NFL's pink month BS as a money grab, which we all know it is. Again, that's the question. That's not my take on it. Look, I'm a firm believer that the best people should be in the booth, especially the big primetime major booths. That's why I'm concerned about Jason Witten. How do they know Jason Witten's going to be good? He must have blown away ESPN when he auditioned. Blown away. How else do you give the guy the Monday Night Football booth? That's a big spot for Jason. It's a big spot for anyone. And I still think that that Kurt Warner tweet from Wednesday that coincidentally was posted at some point after he found out he wasn't going to have the ESPN Monday Night gig. I, I still think that that may have had a little something to do with a guy who's never called a game getting that job because he wore a star in his helmet for 15 years. So I'm all in favor of the best people getting the job and if the networks decide if one of the major networks decide male female otherwise regardless of background regardless of experience regardless of education that there is somebody who is quote unquote the best and it's not based upon promoting someone due to the fact that they're different due to the fact that it would be good for the company to have diversity look i know diversity can be good but diversity for diversity's sake isn't you want the best people. Put the best people in the broadcast booth. That means it's the best possible broadcast. That's what the guiding factor should be. And if every network is committed to that, then 
the fans should be expected to give the networks the benefit of the doubt and embrace the lineup, whatever the lineup is. And if it truly is good, then it takes care of itself. And we all know good when we see it, and we know bad when we see it, or when it deals with broadcasters. We know bad when we hear it. How are they speaking? Is this pleasing to the ear? Is it informative? Is there substance and style? I've seen articles about men complaining about the sound of female broadcasters' voices. And look, I think plenty of those guys are not going to be receptive to any female voice that they hear. And the reality is this. There are plenty of male voices that I do not want to hear. Apart from Gilbert Gottfried, I mean, obviously, I never want to hear that guy. No matter what comes out of his mouth, no matter how funny it is, I don't want to hear that voice. It's different. It's, I remember the first time I heard him, like back in the 80s on MTV, it was like, oh my God, there's actually a human that talks like that? Oh, this is kind of funny. Okay, I've had enough. Make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. Some of you may react that way when you hear me. But you know, guys like Matt Hasselbeck, that's not a good voice. And I don't want John Facenda, right, chain-smoking cigarettes to get to the point where you have that natural baritone. But there are some bad voices out there, bad male voices, and, you know, that's part of it. It's got to be a voice that is pleasing to the objective ear, and we know it when we hear it. Sometimes it falls into that, that range where reasonable minds may differ, but you got to have a good voice. And at a minimum, you can't have a bad voice. You can't have a voice that is a distraction to the listener. And some of the people whose names were mentioned in connection with Monday Night Football, it's like... Mike Emmerich has a great voice, doesn't he? You've been watching the hockey playoffs? He didn't do any of the Penguin games in round one. I think he's done almost all of them in round two. Man, there is something about Doc Emmerich. It's the... The quality of the voice, it's a very unique sounding voice. It's also how he uses that instrument when he's calling a game. First of all, you rarely hear him misspeak about who has the puck. Last night, I think he confused Jake Gensel for Chris Letang, and that was significant because I think that's the first time I've ever heard him not get the guy with the puck absolutely right. And my my guess is... That has tormented him to the point where he's thought about it all day. Because you can sense, and again, it's all about making it seem easy. The hardest part of this job is making it seem easy. And Emmerich takes that cluster of 12 bodies, actually 10 because the goalies are, you know, you know who the goalie is, right? The Pittsburgh goalie is Murray and the Washington goalie is Holtby. But otherwise, it's like 15 to 20 different guys per team who are on the ice. They're changing out lines, and they don't do all five. People think like, okay, there's the, the the top line, the second line, the third line, the fourth line, and they're the same five. No, they'll shift out the forwards, and then they'll shift out the defensemen. So you've got a multitude of permutations of combinations of players, and the guy always knows who has the puck, and he always knows who's challenging for the puck, and he makes He gives life to the idea, and the thing I love about hockey is at any given moment, that damn puck can find the net, and there are so many close calls in hockey, and Doc Emmerich makes every call, every instance, 
every chance, feel like, and sound like it's every bit as close as it is. And maybe he makes it seem even closer than it is, but it seems close. You see all that stuff that goes on in front of the net? And a lot of times it's right place, right time. One of the goals last night in the Nashville-Winnipeg game, one of the Nashville goals. I think it was the first Nashville goal. It's just there, There's the puck, and there happens to be a guy, and he happens to get his stick on the puck while the, the opportunity is there, and he jams it into the net. It's like whack-a-mole. There's a certain whack-a-mole quality to hockey. And you're out there getting banged around by a bunch of guys, and you have to be ready in any given moment for that puck to be there. And when it's there, you got to jam it. So anyway, I don't know how I got down that rabbit hole. Part of it is I'm really into the hockey to the point where I may watch both games tonight, even though neither game tonight is a Penguins game. And those series are so close. They're all two to two, I think. I think they're all two to two. All right. Well, I've made it through one question in 10 minutes. Let's pick up the pace a little bit as we wrap up this Friday PFT Live. PFTPM Posse via loyal PFTPM Posse member Jason Schender. Do you think ESPN reporting Witten's move to Monday Night Football during the draft was more about stealing the spotlight when millions of people are watching or trying to force his decision? I think it had more to do with forcing his decision. I think they were getting to the point where they need to know what he was going to do, and they're trying to bring this thing to a head. That's what I think. And unless Witten authorized it or knew about it, he should have been pissed. You know, $4.5 million a year goes a long way toward getting you to smooth over some ruffled feathers that may arise when you're like, hey, guys, what the hell? Right? How about some discretion here? I auditioned for the job. I'm negotiating with you. And you're going to put out there that I'm planning to retire and take this gig when you know damn well that's not the case? Come on, man. PFTPM policy, lower-level front office employees get fired, low-level players get cut, superstar players get made an example of and have their names and reputations slammed publicly and lose endorsements, while most superstar execs get a slap on the wrist, Ursay, just saying. Yeah, I, I don't know that I agree with all of that. I agree that they make examples of scrubs and they make excuses for stars for the most part, unless it's a star that they're motivated to get like Tom Brady. Team by team, they make excuses for the stars and examples of the scrubs. I think there's a fundamental difference between the way the NFL treats management and ownership versus players. That's why some of these higher profile potential violations of the personal conduct policy involving Jerry Richardson, involving Russ Brandon, involving the Washington cheerleaders. If I'm the union, if I'm the players, I'm paying close attention to this because the NFL is always ready to throw the book at the players. And I wonder about the consistency or lack thereof between how owners and management are treated versus how players are treated. PFTPM Posse, we are getting requests for the real hashtag life is rated R guest for the PFTPM podcast, Bruce Arians Uncensored. You know, that's a hell of an idea. That is one hell of an idea. We will commence the effort to get Bruce Arians on the PFTPM podcast uncensored f-bombs s-bombs maybe he will have a little cocktail or maybe rum and coke which is what he drinks when he's not drinking another question this one comes from pftpm posse member at the devil's mine would the nfl ever consider having a london super bowl on a friday saturday to give everybody a day to recover or is that too selfish i don't think it's going to happen 
I don't think a London Super Bowl happens until a team moves to London. Even then, I think it's a hard sell because of the time difference. And and I think if you do it in London, you have to do it the same as it would be. There's a, an importance, I think, to sending the message that this is the same as it always is. It's Super Bowl Sunday. It's 6.30 p.m. Eastern. That's the kickoff. It looks the same. It feels the same. It is the same, even though it happens to be played across an ocean. So I don't think any of that is going to be a thing. And I think if there ever is a Super Bowl in London, which would mean a team would have to be in London, which I think if you're a Jaguars fan in Jacksonville, and if we accept the premise that before there can be a Super Bowl in London, there has to be a team in London, and the owner of your team, who is going to buy a stadium in London if everything goes well, is talking about playing a Super Bowl in London, it doesn't take a whole lot of logic to fill in the gap there at some point and say, holy shit. He may be looking for a chance to move that team to London. And I know that Shad Khan has made major investments in Jacksonville. Stan Kroenke was a Missouri native, too. And it didn't stop him from ripping the Rams out of St. Louis and moving them to L.A. And St. Louis was willing to put hundreds of millions together in taxpayer money. And Stan Kroenke still said, nope, see you later. They're always committed to the city they're in until the moment that they're not. Right? You're not going to show any equivocation or hesitation to stay in the city that you're in until the moment that you realize it's a good business decision to leave that city. Otherwise, you give up your leverage. And see, at a minimum, owning a stadium in London gives Shad Khan incredible leverage when negotiating with the powers that be in Jacksonville, Duval County, state of Florida for public money. Because if they want to stiff him, or not give him what he's looking for when it's time to significantly renovate or rebuild their stadium. Fine, I got my own stadium. You know, at some point a politician is going to say, well, why are we paying for your stadium when you've already bought your own stadium? Khan's response, well, you know what, that's a good point. I'm going to go play my games in that stadium. Thank you for reminding me that I own my own stadium. I will put my football team in it. PFT, PM Posse, Baker Mayfield says a quarterback competition won't divide the locker room. However, when has a quarterback competition not divided the locker room? Maybe because both players are new to the team. It'll be better. Maybe that's how the Browns inevitably screw this up. Here's how a quarterback competition doesn't divide a locker room. It doesn't divide a locker room when there is no competition. When it's clear who the winner is. When you have half the locker room saying it's this guy and the other half saying it's that guy, that's when you have a problem. That's when you have a wait for it, wait for it, here it comes, a schism. Remember when Shefty said there was a schism in Minnesota because as Brett Favre was arriving, the locker room was behind Tavares Jackson. Yeah, that was the case until Favre showed up through a few passes. Ability and performance tend to go a long way toward getting guys on the same page. They all want to win, and you win with your best players. You know, you may be friends with the guy who was already there, and it may not seem fair that he's being supplanted by the hotshot who's being brought in. But when the hotshot shows up and starts performing like a hotshot, yeah, okay, sorry, we love you, pal, but get your ass on the bench. So for Baker Mayfield, if he's the best guy and they all know it, that's why I love how Brandon Bean, the Bills GM, explained it last week as it relates to Josh Allen. If the other guys on the roster know that he's the best guy, he's going to play. 2012, Seahawks, Matt Flynn, all that money they paid him. They drafted Russell Wilson in round three. Nobody thought Russell Wilson was going to start. But you know what? He was clearly better than Matt Flynn. 
So it wasn't brave for Pete Carroll to make him the starter. It would have been brave. It would have been foolish for him not to make Pete Carroll or Russell Wilson the starter. It would have been brave for Pete Carroll to make himself the starter. It's got a little heaven can wait vibe to it. So if Baker Mayfield is clearly the best guy, then so be it. If it's Tyrod Taylor, so be it. It's only a problem if both guys are equal and half are lining up behind one and the other half are lining up behind the other. Another question, PFTPM Posse via Jason Schender. Do you think the NFL will come up with more draft order tiebreakers to decrease the chances of a coin toss since the Raiders would have taken Mike McGlinchey at nine if they had won the toss? Yeah, I don't think it should ever come down to a coin toss. I think the coin toss should be so far at the bottom of the process of setting the draft order. that And, and I wonder if they make it coin toss that early when it comes to draft order just to further avoid any perception that tanking is an attractive thing. Like, do you want teams to be thinking, well, okay, if we finish 4-12 and 12 and they finish 4-12, and 12, well, how many factors here? Well, we, we want to make sure we have fewer this, fewer that. Well, You don't want to incentivize sucking, although it already is there. The ultimate incentive is lose games. To lose the tiebreaker, there are other levels of, of bad that you can aspire to. Well, we want to be 9 instead of 10, but this is a prime example of why tanking is real. And this is why I think my official proposal for the NFL, and this is based upon ideas that have been articulated by members of the PFTPM posse, I think it comes down to this. For the teams that don't make it to the playoffs, it's a straight lottery for spots 1 through 20 in the draft. For the teams that do make it to the playoffs, it's how you finish. Because everybody's going to try to win playoff games, right? You don't need to make it a lottery from 21 to 32. For 21 to 32, it's based on how you finish in the postseason with your record influencing the final placement. For 1-20, to 20, a straight lottery, not a weighted lottery. If you didn't make it to the playoffs, you have equal chance of getting the first overall pick, as does the team that was 0-16 or 2-14. You don't want to reward sucking. You don't want to give teams a reason to give in to the temptation. You want them to try to win every game. And if you remove the possibility of enhancing your draft status by losing week 16, week 17, you ensure the highest level of competition every step of the way. A straight draft lottery. That's what the NFL needs to do. And what an event that would be. You pick a Tuesday night in early April. Or you do it, no, you do it at the league meetings. I'm forgetting my own ideas from the past, the league meetings, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the Tuesday night of the league meetings, all the owners are there. You do a TV production on NFL network and they do a lottery. All the teams that didn't make it to the playoffs. One of those 20 teams is getting the first overall pick. And that's when we find out. And that would be great. And then you have a month for that team to trade it or do whatever. That's my suggestion, NFL. And if you use it, you can cut me a check for the consulting fee. Brady says, holy hot hammers, Batman. How is Christian Hackenberg still on the Jets? Well, here's the thing. They got two years invested in the guy. He was a second-round pick. They're trying to give him a chance to earn a roster spot. And we're seeing reports of him improving his mechanics and all that. We hear that shit about bad quarterbacks all the time. Well, he's really improved his mechanics. And then he finally plays, and it's like, well, now we know why he never played. I asked Mike McCagnan earlier this week about why we haven't seen Christian Hackenberg. He gave the politically correct response. He's not going to say, well, we really blew that one. But I think they really blew that one. Although I still think the final 53-man roster will consist of McCown, Darnold, 
and Brid and not Bridgewater, Hackenberg. Almost had a little moonlight La La Land moment there. It will be McCown, Darnold, and Hackenberg, I think. I think Teddy Bridgewater is going to be gone by week one. Gut feeling. Recliner QB, everything seems to indicate the Monday night booth could potentially be a three-person booth. Why not have Warner and Witten in there, or is that too many stars and or egos? Now, I, I don't know that that's the case. I just think that it's it's two former players. Like, I, I've heard it suggested that maybe they do put Lewis Riddick in there because then it's a guy who was in the front office and a former player and a play-by-play analyst. Or you do a former coach like Rex Ryan. I think re- either Rex Ryan or Lewis Riddick. And, and pl- uh, please don't put Rex, I love you. TV's not your forte. Coaching is. Get back into coaching. College level, you'd be a great college coach. You'd be a great recruiter. You'd be a great motivator. Get back into coaching. TV is not your, it's not your gift zone. And isn't that stressful? You know, like when I, when I, golf and I suck, it's like, I don't want to do it. Like if I, if I'm not good at something, I don't want to do it. Well, then why are you doing this? I hear, I hear you. I, I, I hear the smart asses. I can at least convince myself. I don't suck at this. I can't convince myself. I I don't suck at golf. So I ain't golfing. Rex, the TV thing just didn't you buddy. There's, there's a presence when the camera is on, when the light goes on, there's a certain basic presence you have to have. Rex doesn't have it. I'm sorry. It's true. The hardest thing that anyone can do is engage in critical and objective self-analysis. Rex, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I like you. I like what you've accomplished as a coach. TV is not your thing. So please don't put Rex in the booth. Riddick, Witten, Tessator. I think that may be where it would go. It can't be two former players. And Riddick, I don't don't watch a lot of the ESPN draft coverage. I typically have it on NFL Network. I don't know why. It's not, I don't know, it's not against... ESP, it's just, that's just kind of the way it is. You know, I mean, why do you drink Pepsi instead of Coke or Coke instead of Pepsi? So anyway, uh, I could see a third person, but it would be, I think Riddick or uh, Rex and hopefully it won't be Rex. Recliner QB, I think Witten could still be a first ballot Hall of Famer. You're forgetting the media factor where a squeaky clean player who was great at his position only becomes bigger and bigger with prominent media role. And with people like Parcells constantly taking, talking him up, he could slide in. You know, that's not bad. If, if Witten ends being a superstar broadcaster, that's going to help him potentially get in in the first round. Because even though they're supposed to draw a box around the factors to be considered, other factors do creep in. And if we regard collectively Witten as one of the best analysts in sports broadcasting by the time he's eligible for the Hall of Fame, that could be a factor. At Schneid the Glide, did the way Des Bryant was shown on all or nothing hurt him in free agency? Lots of whinings and drops, it seemed like. I, I don't know that it helped him or hurt him. It showed his passion. And, and also, it was clear the Cowboys still thought he was good. There's one scene where Scott Linehan is telling Dak Prescott, look, this guy, even if it doesn't look like he's open, he's open. He's going to go get the ball. I don't think that that hurt him as much as what teams are seeing on film. And also, recognizing you're going to have to offer this guy a low amount of money. And if he's emotional and hard to handle when he's happy, how's he going to be when he has a stick in his butt? Because I think this year, Des Bryant... Now, if you can channel it and focus it toward ultimate motivation to go out and have a big year and try to get paid next year. But here's the thing. 
the guy's going to have to have a Randy Moss in 2007 year to get paid big money the following year. And even then, the thought is, well, he's, he's one season away from the inevitable decline. And then you have a guy who's got a reputation for being very emotional to the point where it can be detrimental. So I don't know. Steph Boyardee, when are you going to do an all-question pod? One of these days, I'm, I'm, you know, we hear criticism and we are sensitive to it. And sometimes I know if I do an all-question pod, people are going to say, oh, God, really? You spent an entire podcast just answering stupid questions instead of telling us what's going on. So one of these days, how about that? At the Real Forno with the Washington cheerleader story, could this be the beginning of the end of cheerleaders? I don't think so. And I've seen people out there try to argue that, like, the New York Times is trying to ban cheerleading. I look at it this way. The cheerleaders deserve the same respect, the same consideration, the same treatment that the players or other members of the organization get. And if the organization is incapable of providing that, then they shouldn't have cheerleaders. And if the NFL isn't in a position to properly ensure that the cheerleaders are respected and treated the right way, then the NFL shouldn't have cheerleaders. And isn't it amazing to me that the NFL has been Teflon. The shield is Teflon when it comes to these cheerleader controversies. They have managed to posture all of these as team issues only. How is that the case? Everything else that ever happens within the confines of a team facility is viewed as an NFL problem. Richie Incognito bullying Jonathan Martin, that's an NFL problem. Deflategate, that's an NFL problem. Bountygate, that's an NFL problem. Everything that ever happens is viewed as a league problem except mistreatment of cheerleaders. How do they pull that off? How do they manage that? It's an amazing twist of PR that they've been able to pull that off. I don't buy it, but you know what? There's nobody else out there saying, hey, you know what? This should stick to the NFL the way everything else does. I'm saying it. Shows you how much pull I have. Nobody gives a shit what I say. That's all right. I'm used to it. As long as the check's clear, I don't care. Faisal Morali, did Cliff Averill just retire? I haven't. I've been doing the podcast, so I don't know. I mean, he's been cut by the Seahawks with a failed physical designation. He's going to have to pass a physical. When you're talking about a neck injury, good luck getting somebody to pass a physical. Who was the kid that retired from the Ravens, the promising young linebacker who was at one point on PFT Live? He was a tackling machine. I think he was undrafted. He retired because he had a neck condition, and then he tried to come back. Remember that? Zachary Orr. Thank you, Google. Zachary Orr tried to come back after he had retired, and what happened? No one is going to clear him to play. When you're talking about a neck injury, no doctor is going to clear you to play because no doctor wants to be responsible for that potentially serious injury that happens when we knew. Remember, what was it, Reggie, Reggie, Reggie Theus? Reggie Lewis. Remember the Boston basketball player who had the heart condition and then died? Nobody wants that. Let me see what it is here. I think I'm finding it. It was back in the 90s. Reggie Lewis, July 27, 1993. He died after collapsing in a gym, July 28, 1993. He had collapsed with a heart ailment during a playoff game in April and was warned by doctors he would risk his life if he ever played basketball again Died last night after collapsing while shooting baskets at the team's training center at Brandeis University. 
He was 27, had resumed light workouts after seeking a second medical opinion and being told he didn't really have a severe heart ailment after all. And we wonder why Maurice Hurst went undrafted. So you can get doctors for the most part to say whatever you want them to say. But in this day and age, especially in football with neck injuries, with head injuries, you're going to have a hard time getting a doctor to clear you. Sham God, I know you briefly touched on Witten's Hall of Fame candidacy. However, he wasn't an impact player touchdown-wise and arguably wasn't the best tight end of his generation, especially with Antonio Gates, Tony Gonzalez, Jimmy Graham, and Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, look, this all came up because MDS wrote an item earlier today saying Jason Witten won't be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And a lot of Cowboys fans lost their minds over that. Well, it's true. Now, the point that was made earlier... If he ends up being a great broadcaster on Monday Night Football, maybe that enhances his chances. But, you know, he has no Super Bowl wins, and those team accomplishments mean something, even though it's an individual award. And and when was he ever regarded as the best tight end in football? There was always somebody else who overshadowed him. And, and also, when was there ever any suggestion that people game plan to stop Jason Witten? You know, Rob Gronkowski, the prime example of a tight end that people game plan to stop, and that was never a consideration with Jason Witten. At Burn Unit, do you think the Steelers would trade Mason Rudolph or release Big Ben if a Jimmy Garoppolo situation arose? Well, they also could trade Big Ben. And I guarantee you this. The moment that Big Ben isn't the guy that he once was and the moment that they think Mason Rudolph is ready to go, they're not going to hesitate to get rid of Ben Roethlisberger. There's no warm and fuzzy family-type vibe. Art Rooney doesn't consider Ben Roethlisberger another son. Ben Roethlisberger has been a pain in the ass for the Steelers. And it's true. It started with the motorcycle accident when he was riding without a helmet. It continued with the lawsuit that was filed against him in 2009, just a couple of weeks after PFT and NBC got together. The lawsuit in Nevada alleging sexual assault. Then the following year, the incident in Milledgeville. They almost moved on from it. Remember there was a rumor they were going to trade him to the Raiders? I think it was the Raiders. The moment that he slips and the moment they think they have a a capable replacement, he is gone. Guaranteed. They're not going to choose him over a guy that they think is ready to carry the team forward. They're not. At Burn Unit, does your gut and or lawyer experience tell you that the Reuben Foster case is one where the alleged victim was paid off? Or does the recanting sound legit? There's a video that, that I don't think is available yet that the alleged victim says shows she inf- she suffered the injury, the, the ruptured eardrum in a fight with another female. And the recanting includes a claim that she was upset and she told Reuben Foster she'd ruin his career and so she made the false allegation. Look, I mean, if nothing else, this reminds us that people do make false allegations. It does happen. It's real. We need to respect all victims, and we need to trust the process and give people a chance to have their claims proven. But sometimes people do make things up. It does happen. It's not unprecedented, and it will happen again. I don't know what to think, and I'm not going to come to any premature decisions on this. The problem is, as a practical matter, if the alleged victim is determined to stick to her story, you don't get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. How do you get past reasonable doubt? If the victim gets on the witness stand and says he didn't hit me, how do you prove that he did if the victim says he didn't? 
Unless you have some other witness that says, no, she, she's lying. He did. I was there. I saw it. That's what makes domestic violence cases so hard when the alleged victim gets reluctant about pushing it to the limit and putting away the person who caused the alleged victim harm. And then you've got the NFL angle. Good luck proving a violation of the personal conduct policy. If she says, I'm not, you know, here's how the conversation goes. The phone rings. She answers it. It's Lisa Friel. Hi, I'm Lisa Friel from the NFL. We'd like to ask you some questions about Ruben Foster. Click. Call back. I, I, sorry, this is Lisa Friel again. We must have had a bad connection. I don't know if you're in a bad cell, zo- cell zone, but I'd like to ask you some questions about click. And they have no power to force the alleged victim to cooperate. These are, these are real practical issues that, that make it impossible to dispense justice in cases where there may have been a violation of the law or a violation of the personal conduct policy. Brady says, at my girlfriend's grad school commencement, but I still need to know who is the next big contract after Aaron Rodgers. Could it be TB12? I already talked about that earlier, that that would be the thing that the Patriots could do to make him feel appreciated, although I don't think that's going to happen. But that's what they could do. I should probably wrap this up. We've gone for an hour. I'm, I'm going to scroll through here and see if anything jumps out that I think needs to have... Um, needs to have an answer. How about this one? Matt in Beantown, my biggest takeaway from yesterday's CTE discussion panel with Boston University's Anne McKee is that CTE is more likely to happen from repetitive collisions on the offensive line. Why then is the NFL so hell-bent on getting rid of the kickoff? Now, first of all, we still don't know what it means to have CTE. We still don't know what the connection is between CTE and the symptoms that arise. And you know, for every guy out there that we've seen develop serious cognitive problems late in life, there are plenty of former players who are fine. Chris Sims made that point the other day, and that can't get lost in this because I think it's not good to make these former players think they are walking around with a ticking time bomb in their brains, and it's just a matter of time before they become suicidal or become impaired or begin to forget things, or and and how do you distinguish that from the normal aging process? So, I, I I just I think that a lot more medical research needs to be done before we get to the point where players are you know once they get past that 20 to 25 year old range where they think they're never going to die and they're invincible and they can do whatever they want and they're never going to change and everything is going to be the same, then they get into their 30s, they get into their 40s, and and, and they start to really worry. Do I have a serious health condition that is going to crop up at some point all because I played football? Hopefully the medical research will get to the point where they'll have greater clarity. But the anecdotal evidence, the, just looking around at the guys out there, I, I think maybe it's a little overstated by those who have an agenda against football. And I hate to be one of those people that just blames any, oh, the, the, no, the, there's no merit here. You just don't like football. But I do think that's part of it. Just like we say false accusations happen. There are people out there who don't like football, would like to see it diminish. They have an agenda against football. So the kickoff, though, it's they say they want to reduce the concussions. I believe that they are dealing with the kickoff because they want to avoid someone dying during a game. It happens at the high school level. If it happens at the NFL level, there will be immediate 
committee investigations. Congress will be involved. The thing that I think the NFL is ultimately trying to avoid, and this may be inevitable once gambling becomes legalized, the creation of a federal commission that is responsible for overseeing professional sports, including football. The NFL does not want to give up any of its control over itself to anyone else. None of us do. None of us do. But with gambling, with the potential for someone dying on the field during a kick return, and that's the play where the risk is the highest. Again, we're talking about guys running at each other full speed. The helmet gets dipped instinctively and reflexively at impact. Extra pressure on the C4, C5 area of the spine. You can have a fractured spine, a spinal cord contusion. You can have serious injury, paralysis, death as a result of that. That's what they're trying to avoid. Yes, reducing concussions is part of it. But I think the main reason the kickoff is under assault and why the kickoff is going to change dramatically is because they want to take out of the play this supercharged Oklahoma drill where you've got guys 40 yards apart who are coming straight at each other. All right, I'm going to call it. If I didn't get to your question, ask it next time. I say that, I'm still, I'm still scrolling and looking to see if I can just squeeze one more in. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll call it. We'll do it next week. Today was a bonus because I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. I was able to do it. Thank you for your service. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll do it again Monday.